And all of us who are not heading off to Sunday school, I'll invite you to join me in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the New Testament in your Bible. If you grab your Bible, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Charlie's in the back. You'll be glad to share a copy of God's Word. And, and reach into your bulletin. There's a little note page. And boy, you know, I just uh, am I'm so thankful for our wives. And when they go away, we appreciate them more, right? And uh, we find out how many dads can't get the kids here to church, and, and so they're gone. <laughs> but the moms, it seems, when we have a men's retreat, the moms, are, are they're on it. They are good to go, but dads suffer a little bit. Anyway, we appreciate our wives, and good to have them back this evening. Second Timothy chapter 3, that's where you're at. And uh, church family, last time that we were together, we broke from our study series in Ecclesiastes, if you recall. We introduced last Sunday a new six-part series, which has as its focus creating some space for us to think about, celebrate, and, and, and practically interact with five incredible truths that lie at the center, at the very heart of our salvation in Jesus. This month, churches across America and indeed around the world are pausing to remember the 500th anniversary of what is known to history as the Great Reformation, sometimes called the Protestant Reformation. 500 years ago this month, in the 16th century, which would be the 1500s, something happened that was more than just a historical event. It was more like a historical tsunami within Western civilization. It wasn't a tsunami of technology, although new technology for that time proved very helpful, uh, especially the printing press being invented. It was not a tsunami of politics, although it changed forever the political landscapes of, of Europe and America. It was a tidal wave of truth, spiritual truth, and it washed over everyone and everything from the highest seats of power in government right clear down to, to the street level. A tidal wave of truth in workplaces and pubs and in homes and in families. A tsunami of truth for folks like us, like you and, and me. And what truth was this? Well, it was the truth about how to enter into a personal relationship with God. How to address permanently and effectively the issue of sin in your life. How to experience forgiveness in your life from the sin that separates you from a holy God. It was a tsunami of truth about the only gospel that actually saves sinners. This truth changed the world forever. It came into the light through the Reformation, and it has changed your life, and it has changed mine. So here's what happened, short version, a recap from last Sunday. In Europe, more than a 1,000 years prior to the year 1500, the spiritual life of the people, all the peoples of Western Europe, were defined and directed by the Latin church, the Roman Catholic church. It was the only church. The true gospel of salvation delivered by the Holy Spirit through the first century apostles in the scriptures, the, the true gospel that you and I know and believe and love, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, that gospel 
over many centuries very nearly became lost. Hundreds and hundreds of years of of the Latin church and its popes and bishops and priests and clerical councils adding layer upon layer upon layer of traditions and and rituals and religious practices and, and requirements to the true gospel of Jesus plus nothing equals everything had produced a false gospel. A gospel of of Jesus plus good works that I do equals salvation. The religious hierarchy within the Latin church could accomplish this, this propagating of a false gospel because very few people could read in 1500. And the Bible was only in Latin. Most people didn't speak Latin. Church services were in Latin. So you came to church and you couldn't understand anything that was being said either. So the common folk were at the mercy of the church leadership and whatever they said and whatever they taught about the Bible or about salvation. This layering on of lies reaches its dark zenith when the Pope, as a way to raise money for building giant cathedrals and acquiring more lands and increasing the church's power, instituted the sale of indulgences. Do you remember this from last time? Yeah, yeah. You and I, living in Europe in 1510, could go to our church, the only church there was, and there we could, we could buy an indulgence, which meant we could purchase a certificate that would grant us forgiveness of sin by God. I could buy an indulgence for a past sin, or I could buy an indulgence for a sin that I planned on committing in the future. I could even buy an indulgence for my friend or a family member that I was concerned about. And as we talked about last time, what a great way to raise money. Sell the grace of God. And, and, and church family, the money just poured in to the Latin church. People wrongly and deliberately misled by the Latin church leaders believed that Jesus plus good deeds and indulgences equaled salvation. They died and stepped into eternity with a false gospel, a gospel that could not save them. Well, finally, some some brave Catholic priests and monks within this, this, this church system who could read the Bible, said, enough is enough. This isn't what the Bible says. And God used these reformers as they came to be known. In particular, a monk named Martin Luther in October 1517 to challenge all of this layer on layer of man stuff that had been added to the true gospel. Luther was the point of the spear and he challenged the Pope and the church declaring that only faith in Jesus alone, nothing added to him, saves a sinner as God pours out his grace. That's what the Bible says, Luther said. All of his life, Luther had been taught and had lived as if it was faith in Jesus plus his own efforts that saved him and gave him heaven. The gospel plus. We talked about it last time. But that approach in his life never gave his soul peace. He was tormented by his lack of holiness, the sinfulness that he knew was in his own life before a holy God. But then as he was studying 
the books of Romans and Galatians, the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of Luther's heart to grasp the truth. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the righteous shall live by what? By faith. By faith. Not by Jesus plus good works. The saved live by faith. Not by Jesus plus my own self-effort. And certainly not Jesus plus indulgences. And once the blinders came off of Luther's eyes and he, he nailed the, to, the, to the Wittenberg church door his 95 challenges to the Latin church leaders and the Pope, October 31st, 1517, when he did that, he unleashed a firestorm that literally changed the world. As we mentioned last time, had it not been for the Reformation and nothing else had changed in the historical landscape, you and I would not be here today. There would be no Idlewild Bible Church and we would be lost, spiritually dead, holding on to a false gospel of Jesus plus that could never save. That's why the Reformation is really important to us. Church family, what we're doing on this 500th anniversary is returning again to what are known today as the five solas of the Reformation. Sola is the Latin word for alone. What the Reformers recovered from that black hole of the Latin church and then sought to protect and to promote were five non-negotiable essential aspects of biblical salvation doctrine and without these the true gospel the true way to be saved from an eternity of separation from God in hell cannot be accurately proclaimed or correctly be understood and believed we need these five solas what are the five solas sola scriptura scripture alone sola gratia grace alone sola fide Faith alone. Solus Christus in Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria for God's glory alone. The five solas, the five alones of true salvation. These essentially summarize the heart of the Reformation. But again, let me just say that this series is not about the Reformation and it's not about the Reformers. It's about us as a church family celebrating the true gospel together, who Jesus is and what he has done appropriated into my life by grace through faith. That's the gospel. Who Jesus is, God in flesh coming into our world, amen? And what he has done, lived sinlessly and died sacrificially to pay a debt to God that we could never pay, rising from the dead victorious over the grave. And we say, amen appropriated into my life. I believe that Jesus did what he did for me because he loves me. Amen. By grace, apart from any good works that I have done or ever could do, my salvation is by God's lavished grace in my life. We are celebrating the true gospel's recovery and affirming it again together afresh that it is the only gospel that saves. So the five solas. I would ask you to think of them perhaps in this way. 
You've got a little diagram there on your, your note page. Think of the five solas like a, a super strong salvation house. The foundation of this house is sola scriptura. Like the illustration that Jesus used in Matthew 7 when he said that the house that stood was the house that was built on the rock, right? Well, think of that. The true gospel house rests on the foundation of holy scripture alone. Everything that we believe, everything that we obey, everything that we embrace and do and hold most dear spiritually and concerning our relationship with God comes from the rock-solid foundation of what we learn in sola scriptura. God said it, we believe it, and that settles it for us, right? Upon this foundation are three massive pillars which then define what the true gospel really is and how it truly saves. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christos. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, nothing added to that. And then when the foundation of Scripture alone is acknowledged and and firmly in place, and the three essential pillars of the true gospel are immovably anchored into this foundation, then the roof over the gospel house, pointing only and forever upward, is soli deo gloria, for God's glory alone. Church family, this is the entire Reformation in a very simple little drawing. It's kind of like the entire Reformation forest in a single acorn. It's kind of like that. The five solas that form the essence of salvation truth for sinners for you and me. And it all, all of it, rests upon the foundation of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Well, in Europe in 1500, under the domineering, controlling, restrictive, manipulative hand of the only church that there was, the Latin church in Rome, Scripture alone was not what was believed or taught. In 16th century Europe, you believed because it was all you had ever heard, and you can't read, and even if you had a Bible, it wouldn't be in a language that you could read it in. All you've ever heard is that God speaks with equal authority through the Bible and through the church, through its leaders, the Pope, the cardinals, the bishops, the priests. Rome and its ecclesiastical hierarchy, after many centuries of unimpeded freedom to say and do as they pleased, truly believed that they spoke for God with equal authority to the Bible. It was the Bible plus the church. So the way to have a real saving relationship with God came through Scripture plus church traditions, Scripture plus church councils, Scripture plus papal edicts and pronouncements. Now that said, you would not be at all surprised when the true gospel of grace alone through faith alone and Jesus alone gets added to by the church. Good works, acts of penance, Participation in Mass, church membership, infant baptism, holy orders, marriage, last rites, and oh yes, indulgences. Those are all part of how you are saved. Should we be surprised at the true gospel? 
would become a false gospel that could never save. Those early reformers who could read and were brave enough to risk their lives to challenge Rome said, no, it's not Scripture plus the church. It's sola scriptura, Scripture alone that shows the sinner how to be saved. And it is nothing else. It will never be anything else. Sola scriptura. The early church reformers' conviction was that if, if everything, if, if anything else, popes or, or preachers or councils or traditions are added to the foundation of the church, then the integrity of the foundation is compromised and it cannot hold up salvation truth. The true gospel of Jesus collapses in a pile of rubble. Worthless rubble. Now if you flip your note page over, the foundation of the true church, sola scriptura, is an amazing thing to spend a little bit of time with. But why is that true? Well, church family positioned as, as the centerpiece of this salvation doctrine are two verses that many of you know well and some of you memorized for good reason because they're so, so important. The Reformers knew these two verses by heart. These two verses are joined by a host of other verses and passages that enable us to trust the Bible alone to lead us safely and securely into a personal relationship with God. These two verses are 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Are they highlighted or underlined in your Bible? Because if they're not, they should be. In fact, can we read them aloud together right off of the, the screen? Let's do that, church. Let's do it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we say, Amen. Two verses for you to memorize if they're not in your heart. Let's step into these monumentally crucial verses for when we do, we're going to discover, as the Reformers did, that only this book is inspired by God and completely sufficient for you and me. The key phrase is the first one. All Scripture is, what was it, what was it again? Breathed out by God. Now, the word all is intended to encompass the entirety of the writings of the Scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament, 66 smaller books brought together to form the one book that we call Holy Scripture. But what is it about these writings that make them the only Scripture for us? Well, verse 16 tells us, This book was breathed out by God. Now, God doesn't have lungs, does he? No, of course he doesn't. Scripture tells us that God is spirit. So we know that this language is the language, language that accommodates our limit, limited understanding of the way things work. When we speak, we have to breathe out, right? If we try speaking while breathing in, we make these really weird noises and we hyperventilate, right? You don't speak by breathing in. You speak by breathing out. Words require breathing out. All scripture is God breathing out his words. He's speaking to us. 
Scripture is God talking to us, communicating with us. What makes the Bible the Bible is the fact that the one who is speaking is God. He's the source. Scripture comes from God as he breathes out his word in written form. This is known as inspiration. You've heard that term, that the Bible is inspired. When someone asserts that the Bible is inspired by God, this is what they mean. God breathed out his words supernaturally and then supernaturally preserved them in a book that is like no other book in the world. Do you believe that? I hope you believe that. Well, someone might say, but wait, you know, if God spoke through human writers, which we know is the case, he did that, Even though he is perfect, we all know that humans aren't perfect. So how can what is written in Scripture be perfect if humans are involved? Well, that's a great question, and God anticipated it. 2 Peter 1, verse 21, Peter writes, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by whom? By the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He oversaw the communication of God onto a printed page. The God who is able to reveal aspects of his person and his power through the beauty and complexity and precision of creation has no problem speaking through human authors in such a way that he preserves their own temperament, their own personalities, their own vocabulary, their own backgrounds and experiences, and yet they... They, 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 they put down on a page exactly what God desires for them to write. The ultimate source of Scripture's content is not the will of the writer, it's the heart of God. To say it another way, it's not the authors who are inspired, it's the Scriptures themselves that are inspired because they are what has been breathed out by God. The authors, some 40 of them over a period of of 1,400 years, are but the instruments in God's hand who record what he wants for you and I to have. That's inspiration. We would not think that this is strange. We shouldn't anyway. Jesus is the perfect union of deity and humanity. He weds the two together. God joins himself to humanity in the incarnation It's not strange that God would wed himself to the printed page through inspiration. This is why Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from where? The mouth of God as he breathed it out. Every word of Scripture comes from him. Hebrews 4 verse 12 reads, For the word of God is living and it is active. This book is alive because the one who spoke it is the eternal God. In John chapter 6 verse 63, Jesus says, The words that I have spoken, that I have breathed out to you are spirit and they are life. The the reformers courageously rejected the centuries-held conviction of the Latin church that it is the Bible plus 
the superstructure of church tradition and councils and rules and requirements sourced in self-serving clerical leaders' pronouncements that define your relationship with God. They cried out, no, where is that in the Bible? Right? Where is that in the breathed out word alone? Sola Scriptura. So the word of God, the Bible, is inspired by God, breathed out by him and only by him. And because that is true today, there are several other truths, as you see them there on your note page, that kind of extend from that, that that come out of that. They give us the absolute and full confidence that we need that the Bible will be our only source for what to believe and how to live before God. Now, heading off this list of extended truths, as you see it there, is the inerrancy of Scripture. That's an essential part of sola scriptura. Because the Bible is God-breathed, it is therefore going to be without what? Without error. It has to be without error. God is holy. God is perfect. He cannot lie. He cannot misrepresent. God is truth. And every word that God speaks is going to be true, and it is going to be error-free. Amen? Titus chapter 1, verse 2 says, God never what? He never lies. Ever. Are there some things that God cannot do? Our kids ask us that question. Daddy, Mommy, are there things God can't do? And we can say, yes, there are things God cannot do. He cannot sin. He cannot deny himself, and he cannot lie. So when he speaks, he speaks what? The truth. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 17, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves truth. With the reformers, we uphold the very inerrancy of the word of God as an extension of inspiration. Let God be found eternally true, even if every other person is a liar. Let God be true. And then when God breathed out his word, that automatically implies an an infallibility to scripture. All that is recorded in scripture has to come to pass. The words of God cannot and will not fail. Do you believe that? That's the infallibility of Scripture. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands for how long? Forever. Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a punctuation mark of the scriptures will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That's an affirmation of the infallibility of God's word. And Jesus declares in John 10, 35, the scriptures cannot be what? It can't be broken. If God said it, it has already happened or it's going to happen. It cannot not happen. That's a double negative, but it works. Sola Scriptura is infallible. And then because the word of God is inspired and it is inerrant and it is infallible, it has the authority of God to back it up. When the Bible speaks, that's God talking, right? That's the God of the universe making his will known. 
That's his authority. Psalm 19, great place for maybe this week for you to hang out devotionally. If, you, if you're wondering where to go, one, one morning this week, one evening, whenever you do that, head to Psalm 19. Verses 7 through 11 are a great place to hang out. Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The Bible is not a collection of suggestions. This is not a book of options. This is not a, this is not a written record of things to consider. It's the law of the Lord, isn't it? It's the law of the Lord. And it's binding upon every single person's conscience and life. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord, referring to the book, is pure, enlightening the eyes. The Bible is the very command of God to us. And that's why Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord. This isn't our thoughts, Paul says. This isn't my idea. I didn't come up with this. This comes straight from God. The Bible's authority comes from God. It isn't scripture if the church decrees that it's scripture. It doesn't have authority if a church council says the Bible is authority, authoritative. It's authoritative because God breathed it out. And that trumps the church and traditions and councils and popes. That's what the reformers believed. Sola Scriptura. And because this book is inspired by God alone, that means it's immutable. Sola Scriptura implies the immutability of Scripture. You know what the word immutable means? It means unchanging. It doesn't change. The Word of God never, ever changes. Is that important? Does that matter to you? It matters to me. James 1.17 tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not what? He doesn't change like shifting shadows, like the, the shadows as, through the course of a day move all over the place. No, God doesn't move. He doesn't change. Malachi 3.6, we hear God say, for I, the Lord, do not change ever. And in Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. That's the immutability of Scripture. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures for how long? Forever, verse 89 and verse 160. Because of the immutability of God's word, right will always be right. Wrong will always be wrong. The way of salvation will forever be the way of Jesus by grace through faith and nothing else. That will never change. And within the truth of Sola Scriptura is also implied the invincibility of Scripture. It's a far superior weapon in the hand of the man or woman or young person who knows God in a saving way than any weapon that's ever been fashioned by man or demon. When you hold the book, man, you hold the power of God. 
Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged what? Sword. And when the Holy Spirit tells the Christian that we've been supplied with what we need to do spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 puts it this way. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The word of God. What a powerful, penetrating instrument is the word of the living God. It is an invincible weapon, and you hold it in your lap. And then because the word of God is inspired, it carries with it a finality. That is to say, there is no new revelation to be given to us. We're not waiting for something more from God. And that is really important, isn't it? He has spoken in his word, and with that comes the stamp of completion. Jude verse 3 says, We have the faith that has once for all been delivered to who? To you and me, to us. Once and for all. It's been delivered. Revelation 22, 18, Jesus puts the point on it. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Do you know about the plagues written in the book of Revelation? You don't want to be a part of that. You don't want to add anything to the book because there's nothing to add to it. The Reformation happened precisely because the Latin church forgot about the finality of the written revelation contained in God's book. He didn't want or need anyone to add anything to what he had spoken. As we noted last time, when anyone adds to Scripture, they actually subtract from it, don't they? That's especially true of the gospel. You can't add anything to Jesus and his saving work without taking away from him. Sola Scriptura. Amen and amen. Well, as we would begin to wrap this all up and we return to the centerpiece passage of the Reformation as they turn to this passage, let's go back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 one more time. The first part of the verse tells of the divine inspiration of the Bible. The second part affirms the sufficiency of the Bible, which is equally important to us. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's the inspiration part and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's the sufficiency of scripture in our lives. The sufficiency of scripture tells us that the word of God accomplishes fully and completely everything that God purposed for it to accomplish in our lives as we live them here on this earth. Isaiah 55:11 would be our Old Testament go-to for for support. God says, "My word, my word which goes out from my mouth." There we have it. God breathed will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God is saying, my word is sufficient for you. 
listen to it and obey it. God's word does not leave him wanting. He's not saying up in heaven, now why didn't I say that in my word? Or, or why didn't I include that little part for my people? He's not wringing his hand saying, I sure wish I had said this when I had the chance. No way. God's purposes, all of them, God's redemptive purposes will be carried out because the word of God is sufficient for all that God desires to do in his world and in you and in me. Amen? Amen. Now, does this mean the scripture contains all that there is to know? No, of course not. But it does contain all that is necessary to know to enter into a personal relationship with God, and to live the life that God desires for us to live. All of that is in this book. It does not mean that all truth is found in the Bible. Geometry and biology and other sciences, they discover and describe truth. They may not always rightly interpret the truth, but but God's truth is found beyond the Bible because ultimately all truth is sourced in God, right? He created everything, so any truth that exists came from him. But the Bible does contain all that we need to know in order to believe unto salvation and live unto God's glory until we see him face to face. Do you believe it? Mm. That's the sufficiency of scripture. Second Peter 1.3 God's divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. It doesn't say almost everything, does it? The Bible, through God, has given us everything we need. Sufficiency. And again, it's not that second, that, that, that really is Second Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable, sufficient for four things. For teaching what is right, for reproofing or, or, or reproofing or pointing out what is wrong, what we don't want to be doing, For correction, telling us how to get right when we've gone wrong. And then lastly, for training in righteousness to show us how to stay on the right path. The Bible is profitable for all those things. That the man of God, the woman of God, the young person may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, sola scriptura. It's powerful to convict. It's powerful to convert. It's powerful to conform. It's powerful to console. It's powerful to correct. It's powerful to see to completion what God starts when he saves a sinner. He doesn't leave you undone. The word of God is more powerful than any object you will ever hold in your hands. 1 Peter 1.23, the Holy Spirit says through Peter, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding, what? Word of God. Inspired and sufficient. There is so much life in this book that when its truth is planted in the soil of human hearts, having been prepared by the Holy Spirit, when God by his sovereign graces causes that seed to germinate in a sinner's heart, it produces eternal life. And it is this book alone that holds the truth. 
of how that transformation happens in a sinner's life. Sola Scriptura, inspired and sufficient. The church has always been, brothers and sisters, at its strongest when it takes a stand on the Word of God. This has always been the high ground of any era in church history, in the history of the world. When, when the church has made a significant difference, it's because it has stood on the, the, the solid foundation of sola scriptura. The only high ground for a church, any church, is to stand on that ground. Do you believe it? That's why Idlewild Bible Church is and always will be Idlewild Bible Church, right? We must not just be dogmatic about that. We need to be pit bull dogmatic about that. That Idlewild Bible Church will always be who we are. Sola Scriptura. So let me end with this. Let me ask you, how committed are you to the truth of sola scriptura? What would you be willing to stake on that conviction in your own life? What would you be willing to risk for that truth? Sola scriptura. Brothers and sisters, this is where the reformers of old put to shame modern-day Christianity. We in America have, have access to Scripture more than any other Christians in history. You know that. Most of us in this room right now have more Bibles on our phones than entire cities of Christians had in the 16th century. Yet how many Christians do not touch their Bible from Sunday to Sunday? It's one thing to have a Bible. It's another to so treasure it that you would be willing to stake your life on the truth that it holds. But that's what the Reformers did in order to recover the gospel that the Latin church had all but buried so that we could have it back. They were willing to stake their life on the truth of Sola Scriptura. Martin Luther, on trial before the Pope and King, ordered to recant of his teachings about sola scriptura and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, said to that court, 1521, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of holy scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive by the word of God, thus I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. That took courage. John Hus, a former Catholic priest in 1415, before being lit on fire as a heretic by his church, said, God is my witness that I have never taught that which I have been accused of by false witnesses in the truth of the gospel alone, which I have written of and taught and preached. I will die today with gladness. And as the fire rose up 
Around him he cried out these words. In a hundred years, God will raise up a man whose calls for reform cannot be suppressed. Well, it turned out to be 102 years, not 100. And Martin Luther nailed his 95 challenges on the Wittenberg church door, and the Reformation was launched. That took courage. Hugh Latimer a former priest in England, tirelessly taught God's word. He was sentenced to die in 1555 for failing to put the church on an equal footing with the scriptures. He wouldn't wouldn't teach the party line. Latimer was burned at the stake with Nicholas Ridley, another priest. And as they're about to be burned, he says to Ridley, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. These and many, many others, mostly nameless, showed their passion for God's word and their love and trust in Jesus alone as they died for the truths that they believed. Now, we don't worship the Bible. But because we worship God, who wrote the Bible, we hold his word over the fallible words of men and councils and popes and pastors. Martin Luther, looking back on that October date in 1517, writes these words. I simply taught, preached, and translated God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. (laughs) Of this church, Idlewild Bible Church, may we say the same thing. God, by your word and by your spirit, unleash the true gospel. Do again what you did 500 years ago through your word, by your grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, for your glory alone. Do it again. Amen? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, may you work within our hearts that we would be found a faithful generation on this mountain in our time. Lord, we desire to be part of a remnant that will remain true to the book and to the book alone no matter what happens around us. Father, I pray that you would give us insight and understanding from the scriptures that we've looked at this morning, from its inspiration, its inerrancy, its infallibility, authority, immutability, invincibility, finality, sufficiency. Grant us insight. And oh, our Father, may may you make us mighty as a church family who loves your word. May we confess the word, may we preach the word, proclaim the word, share the word, sing the word, counsel, correct, and encourage by the word. May we follow the word 
May it be the light for our feet and the sword at our side. Father, thank you that you've entrusted to such pilgrims, strangers, and aliens in this world as us with the treasure of your written word, which tells us of the living word, the Lord Jesus, and how to have life in him. And it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.